All right, welcome back, everybody. This is the Faultline Podcast, and this is accompanying edition number 905. We're a distributed workforce this week. Joining me in person is our esteemed editor, Tommy Flanagan. Hello. And uh, locked up in the house, feeling a bit a bit ill, a bit poorly sick, is uh, my esteemed colleague, Rafi Cohen, of course. Hello. So, uh, yeah. And we have a special guest. Oh, yeah, yeah, Albert the dog. Um, Albert's here in person. Albert is my dog, the office, the office dog. And if we're lucky, guys, we might get another sneezing fit. That could be quite fun. So, uh, right, we'll cross fingers. We'll see what's if going on. If he doesn't manage one, I'm sure I will. So. That is true. That is very true. <laughs> so, right. It's been a, a vaguely entertaining week, I think, in the video world. I had fun, at least, Tommy, but but did you? I did, actually. I had a couple of really uh, uh, interesting calls this week. I had to uh, catch up with our French mates over at VXS Orca, um, talking about the mainly about the, the Cinemedia acquisition of Content Armor and the, the implications of that, and um, uh, got, got to have a catch up with, uh, with PR legend Neil Hammond, who I've heard is a big fan of the pod, so shout out to Neil and thanks to uh, uh, him for trying to get me uh, a loophole into Las Vegas for NAB next month. We're kind of clutching at straws there, but but hopefully see some people in Vegas. Um, um, and also had a exclusive uh, first look uh, interview with the three co-founders of the CDN Alliance, which we've spoken about uh, a bit in previous pods, and they have officially swung open the doors to memberships this week. Um, so these are naturally all uh dutch guys uh with loads of experience in the uh, cdn industry because dutch people are too smart for their own good um so we we've already kind of outlined in the past what the cdn alliance aims to do and nothing has kind of changed in, in that regard this is all about encouraging collaboration and and being the voice and the face of an industry which has been a bit lost essentially and it kind of wants to do that via workshops and events and various networking things blah 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 but the thing is um that that we really couldn't drill down into any detail because it's such uh, such an early stage that everything is kind of vague because the direction the alliance heads in ultimately hinges entirely on who signs up and they don't have any members yet so they don't know and it's all kind of a bit kind of fluffy and we don't know where we're going to go we've got really good intentions and you don't want to criticize a non-profit group but it's hard to kind of gauge and uh, what they're going to do and whether they can make an impact in that regard. So they're enc- encouraging anyone connected to the CD industry in any way to sign up. So it's a big pool of players, but um, but I mean, that might not happen. The reason it hasn't launched with any initial memberships already established is because it didn't want to scare people off. So say you're a small P2P player, for example, and you see an Akamai or a Fastly or Comcast and AT&T that were there already as the premium memberships, you might run a mile. Oh, that's not for me. So that's what I'm most interested to see initially, who joins and whether it will be successful in driving this kind of cross-industry collaboration that it claims it's in desperate need of. And well, we can we can see that in, in some aspects that is in need. Um, but something we're really interested in learning more about is whether it has goals of driving standards and there was a bit of kind of hesitation when I brought up the S word because it's a little bit of a dirty word in the CDM world. Um, but we got there eventually. We scratched below the surface and kind of found out that, I mean, who wouldn't want to have ambitions really of building enough momentum as a non-profit group to eventually have enough clout 
to work with standards bodies like the Internet Engineering Task Force and eventually use that to put pressure on government regulatory policymaker types. So they're, they're trying to be modest, but ultimately everyone wants to have ambitions of getting to that point. So the Alliance can hear questions from members like, why isn't this particular technology standardised? And they can try and elevate that up, up the chain. And that, of course, is a long, long way off. But um, it's something that the group wants to help drive as long as demand is there from members because of course the cdn ecosystem is a lot more siloed than telecoms as we mentioned before but the comparison is a little unfair because um because of the way the internet is so reliant on cdn so just as a, a quick reminder the goals are to connect and support and represent cdn industry and, it, and it, that's a lot easier said than done but um um, that's kind of better uh, pictured by looking at the challenges to be addressed, of which there are a lot, and they cover availability, scalability, reliability, privacy, security, sustainability, interoperability, education, certification, and, as we said, regulations. So that kind of underscores how running CDNs, particularly at scale, is still super hard and complex. And I think, um, kind of in summary, I have reservations that, that the CDN Alliance might be trying to bite off more than it can chew because it it wants to um, represent the B2B side, but also help with the way it's perceived in the consumer facing way. And that's the, um, that's going to be difficult. But but then you can't den deny that there's a need for a, a face and a voice. And I'm told that the two together are very important. The CDN Alliance wants to be both of those and you can't have one without the other. So, um, yeah. There we go. And that um, segues us nicely into Rafi, who's going to talk about sausages this week, guy here. <laughs> That's a different piece. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll, we'll look forward to, to the sausages, I guess. Um, but no, I can't wait, Tommy, for you know three, six months when the CDN Foundation is launched. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get another classic uh, standards organization uh, debacle. Um, but sweet, right, I'm going to dig into that one because that is relevant to stuff I'm going to be working on but we're going to move of, uh, of course on to our next one from from Rafi and and this one I don't think this is the sausages but I'm not sure and Albert has perked up now that we've said sausages but Fight Dance expands into VR with Pico but has the moment passed Rafi has it uh, yeah I apologize to anyone who's been made hungry by Tommy's teaser but if you want to read about sausages you'll have to read Faultline because I'm not going to talk about that one this week. Um, what I'm talking about here is that um, ByteDance have just acquired a virtual reality vendor called uh, Pico. Um, ByteDance is trying to diversify uh, its already giant portfolio of different offerings. Um, it's been doing this for a while so already it obviously has TikTok and the Chinese counterpart Douyin. Uh, it has a news aggregation service called Tutao. Um, and a mobile handset range. And then this year it's done a bunch of acquisitions. Um, in March it acquired Moontoon, a mobile games developer for suspected $4 billion. Um, and then in April it acquired MyCodeView, uh, which kind of links to what Alex is going to be talking about. They own a metaverse company called ReWorld. Um, and yeah, now they've acquired Pico, which is the third largest um, virtual reality headset manufacturer in the world. Um, so it's third place after Facebook's Oculus and a Chinese manufacturer called DPVR. And then you've got HTC and Sony making up the fourth and fifth in the global rankings. Um, so, yeah, a big buy in the, in the virtual reality uh, market. But I mean, what we're wondering really is this kind of too late? Has has the hype been and gone? It certainly has in the West. 
Um, but what are things looking like in China? Um, and just another thing worth noting is that Pico, they are seeing their shipments grow quite considerably. Uh, in the first quarter of this year, they saw their shipments grow by 45% year on year. Um, this is the acquisition was for an undisclosed amount, but people have estimated around an $800 million price tag, uh, which is nothing compared to the $2.4 billion that Facebook paid for Oculus in, I think, 2014. But it's not really a fair comparison because Oculus has potential for global expansion really anywhere outside of China, whereas Pico is quite the inverse of that. It might only stay in China, which brings us on to the question of what are ByteDance planning on doing with this acquisition? Um, so within China, Pico has kind of a footing in both the consumer and enterprise markets. Um, sells direct to consumers and it also sells to businesses with its pro range, um, whereas in the West, it only sells to businesses. Um, and if it wanted to try enter the consumer market in the West, um, it would probably have to try bundle with some kind of consumer electronics like a games console or something, because most VR OEMs that aren't like Facebook or Apple are only really managing to sell to um, to consumers in this way you know they bundle with a playstation or whatever i mean obviously sony would probably make that vr headset but you know you've got to bundle with something if consumers are going to pick it up um and uh, most of the main consumer electronics uh manufacturers in the um, west are probably taken for those kind of tethering opportunities and many of the chinese potential partners probably aren't going to go down very well uh, in the West, judging by the Huawei ban. So they don't have much of an option there. And they could go uh, a very kind of different route, which would be maybe try tether it to TikTok, which, you know, on the surface, maybe seems like a good idea. It was the most downloaded video app in the world last year. I think almost a billion downloads, something stupid. Um, um, but I'm not really sure that this would work because, I mean, it's quite a basic reason, but TikTok is quite a seamless, casual experience. Um, and it's, you're kind of essentially meant to be tricked into spending more time on the app than you want to. And having a hardware and a headset is going to completely kill that vibe of, you know, being like, oh, only five more minutes. And then you spend five more hours on it. You know, it's a lot harder to kid yourself if you're literally wearing a headset and you have to put it on in the first place. Um, but so far, ByteDance hasn't said they have any ambitions for going outside of China or for taking Pico there. So, um, yeah, I... I'm really not sure if they are going to expand outside of China, how they're planning on doing it. So my bet would be they're probably not going to, at least in the in the short term future. Um, and yeah, as I said, it certainly seems like VR is slowing down in the West. Um, it used to clutter trade show floors and now it's kind of really um, a footnote in the various different cool, wacky things that people can do with video. Um, and initially I thought, you know, maybe China is a completely different, um, a different situation, you know, a much bigger kind of um gamer population and stuff like that maybe vr is something really of interest from there but it kind of seems it's really followed the same um hype and then plateau and then slump that we've seen in the west uh, the only big difference is the fact that china has such a huge market um it's 55 percent of the global vr market according to idc um the international data corporation um so vr headset owners they shot up from 3 million to 19 million between 2016 and 2019 which is pretty impressive growth but then in the following year in 2020 we saw a growth of only 1 million so we we're at 20 million um from 19 million between 2019 and 2020 um so it's not really looking too promising anywhere obviously there could be a huge resurgence in vr in this post-pandemic world um and it's still yet to be seen the few the full value of the technology until it becomes more cheap and accessible um so yeah it's quite it's quite hard to see where ByteDance are going to take this but i'm certainly interested to find out and the only other thing worth noting is that um 
I read a couple of things here and there that there are some accusations that ByteDance's um, Neo3 headsets are very sim have very similar tech specs to Oculus's. So if nothing else, one reason to stay inside China and out of America is to avoid a patent war with Facebook. Yeah, and similarly, um, if you thought that Oculus was a good idea to avoid, you know, terrible oversight, well, I'm sorry, you need a Facebook account for this, um, which is a bit topical, really, for my next piece, I think, that I'm going to ramble about. But thank you very much, Rafi. I am hungry, so I do take offense, but uh, it's it's fine. We'll move past that. <laughs> Excellent. All right, cool. So, yes, um, foundational questions for the metaverse concept. But broadband isn't one of them. Um, this this might be one of the longest pieces um, I've written for uh, Faultline, and that is uh, thankfully, it, yeah, thankfully it made it past the editor. I think without being um, lopped uh, pretty heavily. But um, yeah, topical really because it's something that's been bubbling along in the background, and I think unless you spend some time reading about it. It's all too easy to be very dismissive because, um, I mean, VR is a great example of the sort of uh, great misleading uh, that, that we got from the PR and marketing people. Uh, 3D TV was obviously another one. Uh, in my previous role in, in the IoT, there was uh, that constant kind of background. Uh, we see it as well with machine learning AI and whatnot. So when you hear the metaverse, um, you, I think, are immediately going to be fairly hostile to the idea. But it is an interesting um, topic, and and in this this sort of piece, I, I took a while to sort of wander through it. But VR headsets um, are going to be quite important to it, I think, um, and that's sort of because as it stands today, the examples of a metaverse that we have are basically video games played on flat screens. But if the metaverse is going to be as uh, pervasive and convincing as its sort of most ardent supporters. Uh, would have you believe it's going to have to be a lot more convincing and i think key to that will be vr headsets but of course uh, lots of people myself included can't wear a vr headset for more than maybe 15 minutes without feeling like violently ill um and that just seems like a, a hard sort of roadblock um that there isn't really a way to uh, get past so the the reason that the metaverse is sort of in the news um is because there's been uh, a few kind of legal uh cases that are trying to set a bit of a groundwork. And, and the most obvious is from uh, Fortnite in its dispute with Apple uh, and, and Android, uh, well, specifically Google Play. But the argument there is that Fortnite is not a video game, it's a metaverse. And therefore, uh, I shouldn't be paying the 30% game fee to Apple. I should get this you know, slightly lower rate. And Fortnite is, um, like frustratingly, uh, one of the more convincing metaverse examples that we have. Uh, and it's frustrating because it's this cartoonishly uh, over-the-top um, sort of video game that is probably most uh, famous for the dances that a lot of you listeners and readers will uh, recognize in your own children doing. Um, so Fortnite, uh, it's, it's, um, it's difficult uh, as, as a good example. But the idea here is that the life you lead inside Fortnite playing it is, uh, you know, an extension or possibly separate of the life you lead outside and therefore there is this existence inside Fortnite where you're experiencing Ariana Grande concerts and whatnot. And, and therefore, uh, you know, it's it's the the future of our kind of digital lives. We had with the internet, then we have the mobile internet, and then we'll have the metaverse. Um, Roblox, another video game that I'm sure parents will be uh, familiar with, that's a better example because it's kind of programmable. 
Um, but the the sort of the, the big issue that the metaverse evangelists have is that they're they're talking about this trend, this topic, on a kind of decade, uh, you know, multiple decades to sort of a hundred years. Um, as in, this is going to be the way that we interact with our friends, our family, our jobs uh, moving forward. Whereas I think most people in our kind of world are viewing it on the sort of the classic five-year venture capital timeframe, which leads to just a kind of a conflict of uh, expectations. So uh, moving through the piece, um, we also looked at the uh, the Facebook um, example, which which was in the news uh, a few weeks ago, where you were a sort of cartoonish avatar sitting around a conferencing table, and it was a way to sort of uh, interact with um, uh, your, your colleagues in a new kind of more engaging way with screen sharing and whatnot. Um, so there's there's legs there in the corporate world, and of course, kids who who sort of grow up playing Roblox and Fortnite, they're probably going to be the most receptive to the idea of these virtual work environments. And of course, with the the pandemic, we'll see a shift towards more sort of working from home, working remotely, and and those things um, will have more legs. And of course, that's a way to sort of grow the concept. And and there is a lot of money um, involved. Roblox went public. Um, it's got a forty seven billion dollar valuation. Um, on revenues of uh, 588 million in the first nine months of a year, which is it's quite extraordinary. Uh, it's probably going to dip, um, but you know it, it's it's a lot of money at stake, and there's going to be a lot of smaller startups um, involved. And I think the going back to the headline, um, normally when we are looking at these sorts of concepts, one of the biggest sort of questions we have is, well, how are you going to get all this data to and from the device? And depending on whether they go for local processing or streaming like cloud uh, gaming weirdly broadband is like one of the um, easiest problems here and and you could argue it's not really a problem um, based on the sorts of users who are going to be the sort of earliest metaverse adopters so then the bigger question which um, i'll save you uh, for, for now at least is how you sort of move between different metaverses um, and sort of at, at the, the highest level uh, it should just be like an api hook um, so it might not be too difficult, but plenty of room in the metaverse, I think, for lots of standards, bodies and arguments. Um, but that, I think, will be will be it for now from our long form content. Uh, and we're going to move into the worth noting section, of course. And as is tradition, Rafi, five years ago today, what was happening? Uh, five years ago this week, Ericsson surrendered to Google. Um, this is at IBC in 2016, and it announced that it would allow Android set tops or Android TV set-tops rather, to work with its media-first TV platform. Um, this was because many operators had deserted media-first in the three years since Ericsson had acquired it, acquired it from Microsoft in 2013. Uh, obviously then it was known as Media Room. Um, and operators were leaving because they felt their multi-screen needs were too urgent to wait for the re-engineered architecture. Um, and by linking with uh, media-first with Android TV, Operators now had an additional pathway to access Ericsson's various cloud-based TV services like 4K UHD, live channels, uh, video on demand, catch-up TV, and cloud DVR. Um, but then, of course, Ericsson's media solutions division was divested just one year later, resulting in what we now know as MediaKind. Nice. The more things change, I guess. Um, yeah, constant waves of uh, consolidation and then offloading. <laughs> but now Android TV is quite the force nowadays. Um, so yeah, it's come a long way. Uh, Tommy, is there anything else in worth noting that you want to draw our attention to? There was a notable move in the uh, pattern, uh, pattern world, codec pattern world, I should, um, should say this week, because uh, TCL, the massive Chinese electronics maker, um, 
has uh, dipped its toes into the MPEG-LA's ABC patent pool as a portfolio licensee member. And what that move has done has, has just effectively resolved all the legal disputes um, from from ABC uh, MPEG-LA patent holders against TCL. And I believe they were all exclusively in Germany. They're the only ones I heard about, but there may be more. So um, that's that's quite a significant um, move when an electronics maker that brings in $10 billion uh, revenue a year has has jumped in. Yeah, and, and based on the uh, the Ruthing TV uh, work we were doing, um, for all of you going, hey, wasn't ABC released in like the 1990s, like 1993? Yes, it was. And unfortunately, those patents are still valid for a good few years. Um, it's not great. It's not a great look. Um, but yeah, uh, there's a big old timeline if you want to go look it up uh, on the website somewhere. Um, my final little bit worth noting, um, SpaceX, little update, 100,000 dishes shipped, 14 countries, $50 million in, in upfront orders, and about 1,800 satellites uh, in orbit. Um, but if you want to sign up today, uh, unfortunately, the fulfillment date in some areas of the US is already up to 2023. So A, it's very popular. Well done. Good for you, SpaceX. B, if you're a fixed line operator, look at the money on the table and, and feel bad. Feel bad about your performance. So thank you very much, gentlemen. We've done Fault Line 905. Uh, Tommy, is there anything lined up for Fault Line 906? <laughs> Says a man who's uh, forgotten I'm on holiday next week. <laughs> there is no, oh. there is no fault line next week. Um, I'm sorry to uh, inform you. I'll be in a caravan down the south coast with my partner, my one-year-old, and my dad, and hopefully we won't fall out, and it's going to be bliss. And we'll be back the following week for when we should be at IBC, but there's no, there's no IBC, so we're hoping there'll be some. Uh, a flurry of news to fill the what would be the IBC um, schedule. So stay tuned. See you then. Excelente. Yes, my brain is far too smooth for for diaries. I, I can think no more than 30 minutes ahead, I think, these days. But uh, please head to the rethinkresearch.biz website where you can check out Faultline and take a look at the Rethink TV exec summaries too. Uh, please uh, follow us on Twitter, social media, LinkedIn and whatnot. <laughs> Um, Albert is not humping anyone, I assure you. He's being a very good boy. Um, but please leave us a review as well on your podcasting app of choice. And um, head over to the Faultline Twitter account where I'll try and get a, a photo of Chief Podcast Engineer Albert uh, up on the feed. So without further ado, I will see you all in two-ish weeks, I think. And uh, yeah, take care. Bye-bye. See ya. Cheers.